Oh, Holy that was... fuck, that was nice. Powerlifting, cross country, and tennis. You could not shoot. Well, actually, tennis is kind of fun. Yeah, tennis, tennis is all right, especially if you can like crack it straight at the uh, opponent, which is what my tactic was. Oh yeah, my doubles partner got hit right in the face during a uh, meet one day. Oof! <laughs> we probably deserved it. <laughs> we got our asses kicked, but that's beside the point. It was fun. Hey, hey, it happens. I mean, I, I was playing um, Summer League Hockey, my first game of the season on Thursday, and they're only 40-minute games, and I broke myself within 10 minutes. Like, left hamstring, groin, and quad, just like simultaneously. I did like one run across the field, and I was just like, something doesn't feel right. I was like, oh, oh, no, no, I'll be fine, I'll, do, I'll be fine. Did another Stop. sprint like it, and I was like, oh, something's wrong, something's wrong. And by the time I walked back to... Um, into the defense, I was like limping, going, "I'm fucked, I'm fucked, I'm fucked. This is bad. This is bad." <laughs> Spent the rest of the game basically within a five meter radius, because that's as far as I could go without like feeling a sort of any damage going on. But yeah, I love well, getting old. I'm glad you're okay. Getting old I sucks. Airsoft as a sport, because that I feel like would be fun. I can carry a 50 pound rucksack and pretend to be Garrison all day. Oh, God. Who That's what Garrison that? used to do before the Marines. <laughs> Wait, you were in Airsoft, Garrison? I used to be, yeah. Ain't no way. What was that like? Uh, I mean, it's fun. It's a damn good cardio sport if you're actually active in it. That's what <laughs> I thought. I was like, I can just haul this 50-pound rucksack around all day. Yeah, don't do that. Hey, if, you, if you're going to wear 50 pounds, get a plate carrier with actual sappy plates, and then run with that. No, guys, my girlfriend is obsessed with Airsoft. Like, she plays religiously. You have a girlfriend? No, yes. Yeah, what's his name? Yeah, oh. what's his name? <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's <laughs> nice. Yeah, right, what's his name? <laughs> <laughs> Callum, what were you asking? <laughs> I was, I was going to say, do you, know, you want to know a sad fact, Garrison, about you and Airsoft? Oh, God, what? You saw more action in Airsoft than you ever did on deployment. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's very, <laughs> like, very fucking true. true. God. I you remember... Should actually, that would be so cool. You should make an airsoft ribbon. An airsoft ribbon? Yeah, like, I, I was deployed to Milson West. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Actually, what yeah, you, you should do oh, is... Oh, please, um, you would rock that so hard. You should I do a, um, an airsoft loadout of what you actually um, had as a loadout. Yeah, like... Che- yeah, at what the point in my life possible. when I was a team leader, a grenadier, a rifleman, an anti-tank man, a fucking automatic gunner, which one? Only then would you ever get an M27. That, that was, was all of those them. moments. Yeah, that was... <laughs> I had a 27 on all of them. <laughs> oh, never mind. I'd well, say probably well, squad like, what it would be your squad. Um, you know the one that you, you used for that really brief um, squad support gun? The... Uh, when you had the bipod and the fucking scope on it. Oh, the fucking automatic rifleman? Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. one with the 30-round fucking mag for suppression. Yeah, the, the M27, yeah. right? That's where the M27 is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I love, I, I love I, 
Nice. What if we made the BAR, but with an optic? Yeah, pretty much. And everyone has this BAR. I'm about to say, everyone has a fucking BAR. I've just got an optic with a wider lens. And <laughs> less power. Yeah, yeah, it was a 3.5 versus a 4, but it had a wider lens and an RMR on top, so. And then uh, you just Garrison, trade off you a see lot of the, power. Uh, you go you see how like, like a... squad, every uh, guy apparently just has like semi-auto uh, M16 knockoff and not an M27? Yeah, that shit's kind of annoying. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I feel it's very aesthetic, right? Well, it's more like, because a lot of, so in the Marine Corps right now, a lot of your non-infantry units have M4s and M16s. So the whenever I play squad, squad picking is an engineer unit. Yeah, they're Yeah, okay, then that would be accurate. First CEB had a lot of M16s and M4s. Mainly M4s. Oh well. We've been recording for five minutes now, so um Dennis, let's start this. Alrighty. Let's One light minute, this please. candle. Hold on. But while Dennis is holding on, uh, oh, I'm holding. I'm looking at the TACOM T55 AM, and uh, yeah, he, he's looking. Um, oh, did y'all not hear William scream right now? Yeah. Yes, I heard William. Hi, William. Okay, well, I was using his him being upset about going to bed for my how excited I am for this kit. <laughs> I'm an awesome dad. Exploiting <laughs> oh, the poor child's suffering. <laughs> uh, anyways. Uh, are we doing the video capture, Dennis? Or? Yes, that's what I'm just saying up right now, because I'm finally back on Windows. It's about well, fucking time, time. You fucking goofball. I know, right? You None silly goose. Linux shit. Oh, oh I, I still have a Linux... Uh, virtual machine on my desktop, so don't get your hopes up. What have I missed? Oh, just me being a computer. Bro, you've missed like a year of shit. What are you talking about? I was going to say, yeah, you <laughs> can say anything. You've missed everything, dude. Who is yeah. me? Who's, who's, who the hell is pinging me? Ugh, coffee's so fucking good. God damn it, who is paying me? What? Ain't no fucking way, Dennis. I think Dennis is a little delusional tonight. <laughs> what are you talking about, Dennis? Uh, who the hell is pinging me? Are you hearing voices? <laughs> what the hell are they calling on? your name? <laughs> Bro, are you like serious or are you just tripping? Uh, Callum, get... What the f hell? So, oh. Ezra, I'll catch you up on one thing. We've had to upgrade Zencaster. I now have a soundboard and I'm fucking with Dennis right now. <laughs> oh, that's great. Despite Dennis knowing there's a fucking soundboard. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. He literally texted our fucking chat. I was hoping and to I was hoping to get Ezra God. with it, and then I heard Dennis going, "Who's pinging me?" I was like, "No, he no couldn't have forgotten." No one so like, I, I just started shaking well, no, no, my no. head. I thought it was me, but I didn't want to say anything, so I thought I'd get yelled at. That's a fair assumption. No, I've had I had to upgrade Zencaster to like a proper proper one, but 
So it was a bit pricey, but now we have a, I have access to a uh, soundboard. So, um, oh, good lord. <laughs> yeah, it's been kind of heinous. It's been fun. Um, all right, we all watching. We all live. Uh, all of that. We networks. are live and recording. Oh Jesus! Well, you should probably start then. Yes. Well, welcome to the Micro Machines podcast. This week we are talking about the B twenty five Mitchell, the most produced medium bomber, and we actually have a relatively speaking full crew tonight. So shall we it's do some introductions? Yeah. Well. As usual, you got me, Callum, from New Zealand, and I'm just drinking a passion fruit sparkling water tonight. Although it's a bit weak on the flavour, it's you know, it's more like it's more water flavoured than passion fruit. But does, I'll go with it. Does it have sugar in it, Callum? None. More than that, that's why. Zero calorie, zero sweetener, zero sodium. Yeah, they all taste the same. All right. Well, you got me, Garrison, out here in Kansas. Uh, drinking the coffee, pumpkin spice, because fuck you guys, and it's fall. And uh, I'm just kind of staring at all my HIDF stuff, as well as planning out my next diorama. So, nice. Uh, Longhorns. I'm Ezra in New Mexico, and I have a gallon of water sitting <laughs> next to me, trying to regain my fluids. He went for a long piss. <laughs> <laughs> Try to regain your fluids. Okay. <laughs> it's good to have you back, Ezra. Thank you. Yeah, good to have you back. Don't ever leave no, us again. back. <laughs> All right. Well, you got me, Dennis, in Ontario, and I am currently sipping on an instant coffee. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so Alan. this week, yeah. Take us away. Well, never mind. Never mind. You preempted me. I was just, I was just about to say. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. 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 You say it. You go. Go for it. No, go for it. No, you need to speak no, up, though. You're no. a bit quiet in the recording. But all right, Cal, take uh, us Cal. away. Yeah, take us away. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So this, this week we're doing the uh, B25 Mitchell. It was the most produced medium bomber and the third most produced uh, American aircraft. So, if we go to the first one, we need to talk about. Uh, what preempted the B-25, and the uh, the main thing is um, everything in the U.S. Air Force at the time was already obsolete. Uh, this is uh, around 1938. We're looking at. Um, Wait, so of course count, the... what do you mean? The PBD Devastator wasn't obsolete. Right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, totally, it was uh, totally uh, fine. Yeah. So I say we use these at midway. Nothing bad will happen. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure nothing. Uh, it will be fine. It will be fine. You don't need to worry about it. It'll be fine. Um, so, of course, around 1938, you got uh, things starting to kick off in Europe, and uh, America was kind of looking at everyone, going, "Hmm, think their things are a bit better than ours." Of course, um, at the time, the America, all America had for in the way of uh, bombers. Um, of course, this is the time where the term medium bomber hadn't actually been defined. There were no medium, light, heavy, anything like that. They just called them bombers, ground attack, whatever. So at the time, they had things like the A-18 Strike II, the SBC Helldiver, A-12 Strike, B-18 Bolo, the B-10, the Devastator. You know, a, a whole bunch of already obsolete aircraft that um, totally weren't going to get absolutely massacred. Um and of course, they're, they're looking across to, um, say, Germany. You know, they're starting to, you're starting to see 
stuff like the HE triple one, Dornier DO seventeen, the uh, Junkers JU eighty eight. You got the British coming out with their stuff, the Wellington. You know, the, they're falling behind a bit, so they need something fast. So on March 11, 1939, the Air Corps issued proposal number 39-640, outlining requirements for a new bomber a, with, that had a 3,000-pound bomb load, a 2,000-mile range, and a top speed exceeding 300 miles an hour. This bomber was expected to operate at altitudes ranging from 8,000 to 14,000 feet. This proposal... This proposal marked a revolutionary moment in aviation history. Contracts were, be, were to be awarded based on a bidder's proposed specifications, drawings, and performance, which carried inherent risks, as there was no guarantee the manufacturers could deliver aircraft meeting their specifications on schedule. The potential re reward lay in saving time, a critical factor at a time when experimental aircraft often underwent two to three years of testing before contracts were granted. The United States couldn't afford such extended development periods. Of course, uh, this is also around 1939-1940, where Japan is starting to, you know, make some make some noises against um, America. I think at this point, America had um, placed embargoes on oil, fuel, a whole bunch of uh, resources to Japan because, you know, they were, Japan at the time were uh, currently in former Manchuria, now China, doing some heinous things that they, yeah, won't admit to. Yeah, they needed something. So North America's response to this challenge was the B-25, which presented a solution that was easy to construct, pilot, and maintain. This would ultimately result in a significantly lower overall cost compared to the Martin B-26, another contender. In the end, contracts were awarded to both the B-25 and B-26. Lee Atwood, North America's Vice President and Chief Engineer, led the Medium Bomber project, aiming to create an aircraft that was straightforward to repair, maintain, uh, whilst being pilot-friendly. North American drew valuable lessons from its NA-40 test program. The B-25's basic design incorporated many features from the NA-40, including tricycle landing gear, twin vertical tails with sim similar shapes, the root airfoil, identical engine and cowling shapes, constant dihedral and, um, wings, and underslung Nasals. The B-25 would also feature Hamilton propellers, which was originally attended, intended for the NA-40, but was never installed. It featured side-by-side -side pilot seating, greater speed, range, and payload capacity. The wing was repositioned to a shoulder, posi repositioned to a shoulder position, and the gross weight was increased by 8,000 pounds. North American initially preferred an unproven Pratt & Whitney R-28... Uh, uh, <laughs> fuck! Pratt & Whitney R2800 engine due to its approximate 300, horse, 300 horsepower advantage over the Wright R2600 and it had a slightly slightly smaller outside diameter which would reduce drag. Ultimately, the proven Wright R2600 engines were selected. So that's the basic concept behind the B25. If we go on to the next slide, Dennis... So this is the B-25. No, this is just it, the first one. Uh, we will need to say, this is not even a prototype. There were no prototypes of the B-25. That's how rushed this program was. No prototypes like at all. Sounds like the F-35. Screw it, we'll just read the, we'll like refine it as we build them in production. 
<laughs> it's like yeah this is the this is the, the first one now the next one is the second one and mm, don't need to worry about anything else so you notice the uh so the, this one the b25 the, the original one uh I, they didn't even leave america uh technically they weren't even part of the air force army whatever but during uh their testing they had um u.s air force markings a uh, little tidbit so on August 19th, 1940, the inaugural B-25-NA aircraft embarked on its maiden flight under the command of test pilot Vance Brees and test engineer Roy Farron. Following this initial flight, engineer Farron noted a significant role your issue. The B-25's testing program progre pro <sighs> progressed with relatively few hiccups. During taxi tests, the nose gear collapsed due, due to a shimmy damper problem. On a different test flight, a fuel line ruptured, causing damage to the aircraft and necessitating an emergency wheels-up landing on the field between the runways at Mines Field. Fortunately, this incident resulted in no serious in injuries and the aircraft was swif swiftly repaired. That's what you get when you don't prototype. Things aren't always the best first out. Ah, shit happens. It's ah, fine. Don't worry it's about it. Like, it's fast, you know. <laughs> you know. What, you expect to stay on the field all the time? So throughout the testing phase, ahem, go back. Not finished. There's no testing phase though. Yeah, There's Dennis, you no fucking prototype. fuck. Throughout the testing phase, five different vertical tail configurations were examined, with the fifth one eventually be becoming the familiar design seen today. The twin tails were found to offer the best balance of control and reduced vulnerability from the rear. Captain Frank Cook conducted test evaluations at the Air Corps and... Uh, conducted test evaluations for the Air Corps and identified a Dutch roll characteristic that he considered unsuitable for accurate bomb runs. Uh, does anyone here know what a Dutch roll is? Dennis? A pastry. Are you fucking kidding? Basically, a Dutch, a Dutch roll is when an aircraft will roll and yaw at the same time in, um, in opposite ways. And basically, it kind of makes the whole thing screwed up. Um, so to so not address... a delicious stroop waffle then. No, but I wouldn't mind one right now. Shit, now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> to address this issue, the dihedral of the outer wing panels were eliminated, giving the B-25 its distinctive gull wing configuration, which was first applied to the 10th aircraft. There is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that the first nine aircraft underwent modifications, specifically aircraft... 40-2166, 40-2170, 73, 74, and 76 were briefly recalled to Inglewood for, from their initial assigned units. The reasons for this recall remain unclear. Aircraft 402168 was indeed modified, resulting in the adoption of the current gullwing configuration. This likely, likely occurred in 1943 when North American undertook the modification to convert the aircraft for General Arnold's personal transport use. While the B-25NA exceeded performance expectations, it had certain constraints owing to the absence of armor protection and self-stealing fuel tanks. The B-25NA models were manufactured, that were manufactured were designated for training purposes or transport roles. The majority of these aircraft, a total of 19, were assigned to McCord Field for training with the 17th Bombardment Group. There is only one left, and that's in the top right. 
there's only one original B25 left. Uh, you'll notice they, they have uh, next to no uh, guns on it. There's one in the tail, one in the nose, and that was about it. And were these uh, 50s or 30s? At the t- at the uh, I believe the one in the tail was a 50, the one in the nose was a 30. That was it. Yeesh. Yeah, not not many to this. But this could have been designed by the, um, you know, the Japanese. I mean, no armor protection and self, no self-sealing fuel tanks. That's that's a Japanese design, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, it's cool when they do it. But is, <laughs> is there asbestos? <laughs> oh, probably somewhere. <laughs> then the Japs made it. <laughs> no, that's their tanks, not their aircraft. I'm twitching. I'm twitching. <laughs> Dennis? Mind you, they put asbestos into everything back then. I mean, you, you know there was um, cigarettes that had asbestos bloody filters? It's like, what do you get? So like, what do you want? Cancer? Well, asbestositis. Grandma, why are you coughing like that? <laughs> Number of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> God. Oh, uh, so, if we go to the next one, Dennis. So, we come to the B-25A. This is the first time they actually um, started making them a bit more. So, distinguishing the B-25A from a B-25 proved to be a challenge since they shared identical visual appearances. Moreover, the serial numbers were not applied to the vertical tail assembly. The modifications introduced in the B-25A were intentionally intentionally aimed to at enhancing the aircraft's survivability in combat situations. These changes included the installation of self-sealing fuel cells, replacing the fuel tanks, albeit reducing the total capacity by 224 gallons. This, re- this represented a 24% decrease compared to the B25NA. Additionally, the inclusion of armor plate was added for an extra 612 pounds of weight. These alterations collectively resulted in a 32% reduction in the range of the B-25A, equating to a decrease of 650 miles. Clearly, these were substantial and meaningful modifications. The majority of B-25A's A models were assigned to McCord Field for training alongside the 17th Bombardment Group. Furthermore, six aircraft were allocated to the 30th, 43rd, 39th and 44th. It's worth noting that all B-25A aircraft were manufactured and delivered before the United States entered World War II and initially served as training aircraft. So you can see that this is a very early, it doesn't even have a dorsal turret at all. Uh, the, two pic- the two pictures on the right though, you will see, that's just showing the interesting gunner, the tail gunner position. You, they, low, they lay down prone in this small capsule which seems like a claustrophobic nightmare. That's so scary. So it's like the HE-111 gunner. Yeah. The HE-111 still gun, wasn't that autom- like remotely controlled? Uh, the HE-111, they didn't have a tail gun. Uh, Their nose they, gunner. They used, um, yeah. Their rear defense was a gondola and a uh, ventral. Yeah. So if you want to make a model of B-25A, though, you basically just take a B-25B and remove the top and dorsal and dorsal turrets basically. You got yourself an A. If you ever want to make one. There are no models of a B-25A or a B-25, the original. <laughs> Have fun filling those gaps in. Oof. Hmm. Ah, nah. A bit of plastic card, you'll be alright. 
Nah, you'll be fine. You'll be all right, he says. <laughs> yeah, saying the man who builds kits from the fucking forties. Ugh. And I've only, and I'm only like a quarter of my way through my Tamiya Patty. I am actually surprised. What is that like? Your fifth bottle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. If we go to the the next one, we have what Ooh. made the B twenty five famous. Ooh. We have the B twenty five B, which of course participated in the Doolittle raid. Uh, this is the first time, and I think only time, a B twenty five were launched off carriers to carry out attacks in Tokyo. But before that, as the United States approached in entry into the war, B-25 was demonstrating its capabilities during training. North American fulfilled their NA-62 contract with the B-25B, but the earlier B-25 and B-25A models lacked robust defensive features, featuring, featuring only a couple of small caliber machine guns and a single 50 cal in the rear. It was clear the preparation, that preparations were needed to ready the B-25 for wartime operations. To achieve this, the tail gunner the tail gun position, along with the protective armor for the gunner, was eliminated. In their place, two Fuck that guy. <laughs> in its place, two Bendix turrets were installed in the rear fuselage. The top turret accommodated two 50 calibers, while the retractable lower lower turret housed an additional pair of 50 cal. These turrets pro provided the flexibility for a gunner to fire in nearly any direction, and an, and the upgrade from a single 50 cal to four was a substantial improvement. However, the addition of these turrets introduced increased aerodynamic drag to the aircraft. To mitigate this effect, the lower turret was designed to be retractable. Uh, however, this challenge, this design had its challenges. Um, quite often, the low, the uh, turret would uh, jam in the down position. Uh, so, yeah, you try and bring it up, and the whole thing just jams itself. Gunners also found it difficult to operate and would frequently experience vertigo while using it. Uh, as a result, the lower turret was frequently removed in the field. Despite these issues, the lower turret design re remained part of the B-25 for the subsequent B-25C and D models. Uh, so you can see in the, the, the uh, little diagram, bottom left, you see just how these uh, turrets worked. And yeah, like most, mm. most basically all of them were removed because they just didn't feel them necessary, basically. They kind of weren't. I mean, when you think about it, Wait, well, how did how did the gunner sit in the uh, how did the so gunner used, sit so in the uh, belly? The ventral. Uh, well, he didn't sit in it. It was a remote cut, more remotely controlled, and he used a periscope to aim, which seems oh, interesting. That's, dope. that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting ever VR headset. <laughs> No, he's playing VTOL VR. <laughs> oh, God. You, gonna... you can see how they get Vertigo, though, way. Oh, yeah. yeah. No kidding. Fuck. Well, well, the thing to me that always gets me is, like, this is a relatively fast aircraft for what it is. If anything, would you not really want to, you know, may, okay, maybe have a tail gun, but, like, the turrets are causing all this drag. Get rid of them. Get the extra, you know, 10 miles an hour of speed because that might actually make a difference. Yeah, you lose a lot of weight. You can carry more fuel. It's just the the the, the ventral turrets just don't make sense, you know. And of course, we have photos of the iconic moment the B twenty five became famous, and that was the Doolittle raid. The B twenty five B was the first B twenty five series to see action in combat. 
it's noteworthy that the Doolittle Raiders flew modified B-25B bombers. B-25 was compact enough to fit on an aircraft carrier and possessed the necessary power uh, to take off from one, making it the ideal choice for the most audacious missions of the war. The initial 184 B-25s were now proving their value on the battlefield. The demand for more was steadily rising. Distinguishing the B-25B from previous models was sim relatively simple by noting the presence of two rear gun turrets, an exposed tail skid, and a single 30 cal gun located in the plexiglass nose. Uh, you'll also note, uh, if you look at the bottom right photo, you'll see a photo of the uh, rear of one of the B-25s. It looks like it's got a couple of guns in it. Those are decoys. Those are actual broom, those, those wow. are actually bro those are broomsticks that have been painted up as um, what the fuck to to look like a gun turret. I oh, assume because the Japanese Zero that has gotten close enough to actually see the individual guns is definitely going to be deterred by the fact that it sees two sticking out. Hey, 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 hey! Budget cuts, gents. Okay, <laughs> budget cuts. It's like where are the fifties? No, 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 no! You get you get better than fifties. You get a broomstick. Ah, <laughs> uh, good one, LT. No, I'm serious, bro. Uh, if you want to make a B25B, you've got two main choices. Uh, Dennis is going to hate both of them. <laughs> uh, oh. First one is the uh, Academy kit. Fiendish, horrible. Oh god. And the second one is an Airfix kit. <laughs> oh, god. not really giving me many options here, Cal. There aren't. Uh, the, the, I'm going to give you a little warning. Hey, that Airfix kit is not bad. I'm gonna who brought him back on? Building a literal <laughs> who, who brought him back? Yeah, <laughs> you, you were dismissed, Dennis. <laughs> <into it. laughs> Dennis, I, I'm going to give you a content warning. Um, the early makes and models of uh, B-25s, you're not going to like the, the models for. Just little heads up. I'm starting to get the feeling that based off the fact this is a weird twin-engine aircraft, I'm not probably going to like any of the models of this, am I? Uh, you will. Oh, okay. I'm holding But later on. Not HK, though. HK sucks. Okay, now you're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Tough times for the little man. No, in, in all honesty, the uh, Airfix kit is not bad. It's actually pretty good. But... Well, Ezra, does the Airfix kit give you the broomsticks? Well, I'd assume they wouldn't be that hard to add yourself. Well, if like, I'm like getting broomsticks, I don't much? really know what we're doing here. Like, I feel like this is just what's going You're on. Right. Come it's on, highway, it's, it's it's highway robbery at that point. Yeah, uh, you you mean to tell me I'm paying for this whole kit and I'm not getting my broomsticks? You're right. How do they? Okay. Well, you so, guys are arguing about fucking broomsticks on a model kit. I'm staring at the best resin printed AT4 I've ever seen, and it is fucking gorgeous. You need to send us a photo. Where? I will. But I'm before then, right now. up next after the B, of course, we have the C. So, in, in late 1941, as the final B 25B aircraft was still in production, the manufacturer of the B 25C had commenced. The B-25C marks a significant milestone as the first B-25 produced in substantial quantities, with a total of 1,625 units being constructed. Notably, this model is unique in, the entire, in that the entire production blocks were contracted 
to foreign nations. The Netherlands re- received 162 B-25Cs, while China and Britain each re- received 150. Uh, under the British um, in the RAF, the B-25C was also known as the Mitchell Mark II, by the way. Uh, independent of any lend-lease arrangements or individual bombers finding their way to other countries. Although the B-25C was heavier and slower than its predecessors, it boasted an extended operational range. The B-25 closely resembled the B-25D, with both models being manufactured nearly simultaneously in different facilities. The only surefire way to distinguish a B-25C from a B-25D was examining their serial numbers. The knowledge gained from prior B-25 models was incorporated into these new models with some of the most noticeable changes, including the solid tail skid on the B-25C and D models. Given the more extended production period for B-25C, modifications and adjustments were made within each production block. Some changes were even implemented mid-production block, allowing for specific custom variations to emerge without necessitating widespread modifications. However, certain changes were still carried out at the modification centers. Notably, the B-25C-42-32281 was transformed into the XB-25E, and B-25C-15s were modified into the first B-25Gs. Detailed information about these modifications can be found in subsequent, subsequent pages. The B-25C underwent exhaust system changes over time. Initially, it featured a shortened version resembling the one seen on the B-25B, with a North American also experimenting with a finger-style exhaust designed as a flame quencher. However, this design was prone to cracking and rarely made it into combat without modifications. In later production blocks, the B-25C introduced hooded S-type exhaust stacks. Additionally, both the top aft turret and the less popular bottom turret were retained on the B-25C models, later B-25C models replaced the 30 cal nose gun with a combination of one flexible and one fixed 50 cal gun. Early in production, the turrets were swapped for Bendix Amplidine turrets. The B-25C bombers saw, an ex- saw extensive combat use, to- and towards the end of the war, the older B-25 bombers were consigned to the scrapyards. As a result, surviving B-25C aircraft are rare, with only a hundred, with only a handful of known airframes in existence, all of which are static displays at best. A lot of them were uh, are basically destroyed. Uh, of course, the B-25C. If you are uh, part of the North African Campaign Group build, well, you can build one. They participated in North Africa, so and you got a couple uh, examples up there with their uh, more beige colours. Uh, Dennis, unfortunately for you, if you wanted to build one of these, uh, you have, again, Airfix um, Academy. Or if you really hate yourself, like really hate yourself, you've also got Frog. Screw it, at least Frog one will be cheap. <laughs> he says that now, just wait. Oof, that's gotta be back. I was, I'll be back in one sec, I'm just gonna let... The recording guy just going to run off for a second. I'll be back in a minute. Well, boys, we are all here. Uh, I guess we own the podcast now since Calm's gone. Yes, go look at podcast planning, though. Uh-oh, what happened? Picture of model AT4 versus Ooh. real life AT4. Is that right? It is. 
it is resin. It's from Alley. Oh, that's very nice. I'm I'm working Even on assembling some of the. Nice. Oh, dude, it's gorgeous. It's uh, it's from one of the figure sets I'm getting or I got for the Ukraine diorama I'm going to work on. So right now I'm just putting together figures. I own an AT4 for home defense because that's what Lyndon Johnson <laughs> intended. <laughs> Three T64 was breaking to my house. What the devil I say as I grab it. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Don't don't be jealous. Okay. Well, it's... golf ball size hole through the first T64. His, he's golf ball my ass. <laughs> oh, man. Did I miss anything? Yes, uh, check out in his home from 3T64 is just like Lyndon Johnson intended. Check out fucking podcast planning. <laughs> Look at the resin AT4 versus a real one. Mm, it's not bad. Is not it? bad. It's fucking amazing. Like, it has like literally every single detail that is on the AT4 is on there. Oh, uh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at it wrong angle. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's actually not bad, eh? I just wish the uh, the shoulder stop and the sights were open, but that's, I mean, that's that would be so brittle it would probably break on shipping, so I don't blame them. I mean, you can probably scratch build that, right? Oh, I definitely will be. Stretch sprue. I'll probably just get some paper and do it because they're so tiny. Hmm. I gotta fit it on this fucking shoulder first. I don't know. Recently, I found stretch sprue is like the greatest thing. Oh, it definitely can be. Definitely can be. Well, they also depend on the uh, manufacturer of the. Uh, like, there's some some companies that you try and do stre stretch sprue, and it's just ugh, shit. Just, like, to, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just true. Won't. All right. Revel plastic melts like immediately. You need you need like tacom. Tacom or Tamiya are probably the best ones. Mini art will just turn into a globulous mess. Anyway, uh, shall we go on to the B twenty five D, Dennis? Waiting for you, you silly goose. Thank you. It's a Karktan B twenty five. Oh God. <laughs> And look, it's Airfix again. And Academy. <laughs> I think this episode is bringing Dennis uh, pain. Man, He's I can't Academy is overrated. Yeah. Did Ezra just say Academy is overrated? He's learning. Y'all judge Academy too harshly. Okay, which one no, is no, it, buddy? No. You, you, you don't get to pick and choose. <laughs> I mean, if you want to do a weekend Listen, Dennis, build of academy a is not bad. I, I personally have never built a bad academy kit. Oh no! I, you know what? Okay, I will fully say that I, there are certain academy kits, like the Avenger, which are great. But the thing is, they're not academy kits. They're just accurate miniatures kits with like a new box on them. I mean, that's true. I don't know. They're still good. In 1939, the U.S. government recognized the impending likelihood of the nation's involvement in a war and, initi and initiated preparations. These preparations included scouting locations for the construction of new plants to manufacture war machinery. The Inglewood, uh, California plant, situated near the coast, 
was deemed vulnerable to foreign attacks, prompting the search for a more secured heartland location to bolster bomber production. What did I do? Pardon? Oh, go ahead. In 1940, a suitable location was identified adjacent to the Fairfax Municipal Airport in Kansas City, Kansas. On December 16th, 1940, the construction of North American's Kansas plant at the Fairfax Airport received approval. And the formal groundbreaking took place on March 8th, 1941. On April 17th, 1941, the first employees of the Kansas plant moved into their office space. By December 3rd, 1919, no. by December 23rd, 1941, the first B-25D bomber was completed. This aircraft, christened Miss Greater Kansas City by Enid Bender, the wife of Thomas L. Bender, was B-25D SN4129648, and it was marked the inaugural B-25 assembled by the Kansas plant. Prior to its completion, it was swiftly painted overnight by Larry Contrail, employee number 145, in preparation for a visit from then-Senator Sen- Harry S. Truman. Pilot Paul, Paul Balfour conducted the maiden flight of Miss Greatest Kansas City on January 3, 1942. A total of 42 B-25D bombers would be modified into B-25D slash F-10s. One of these aircraft was returned to North uh, North American Aviation in Inglewood, California, and converted into a B-25B bomber, resembling the B-25B flown by Jimmy Doolittle in the Tokyo Raid, a topic that we're going to talk about uh, in a, uh, later on. Initially, the, con- the initially the original contract in a 87 authorized the construction of uh, 1,200 B-25D bombers, which were identical to the B-25C bombers. In fact, the first 100 B-25D bombers were assembled using B-25C components. However, in February of 1942, North Americans secured a contract to build 200 B-29 bombers at the plant, resulting in the initiation of the construction of the high bay. Yet, by June of 1942, the pressing need for more B-25 bombers became evident, leading to the cancellation of the B-29 bomber contract. A new contract, NA-100, was signed on June 26, 1942, authorizing an additional 1,090 B-25D bombers. Ultimately, the B-25D bomber production reached a grand total of 2,290 by March of 1944. The high high bay expansion played a crucial role in the significant increase in B-25 production. During early B-25D production, supply shortages plagued the plant, and by late 1942, production had nearly come to a halt. To address this issue, North American invited representatives from General Motors to rectify the problem. The Fairfax plant reduced its reliance on external suppliers and moved, moved more production in-house. The assembly line was redesigned, capitalizing on the additional 373, sorry, 376,300 square feet of space gained through the high-back expansion. An overhead conveyor was installed to facilitate the movement of parts from production to assembly. In the span between May, uh, in the span between April and May of 1943, the entire production line was relocated without interrupting the production process. As a result of these changes, the Fairfax plant was able to manufacture nearly four times the number of aircraft in 1943 compared to the preceding year, and production continued to increase throughout the war. So the difference between a B-25D and a B-25C is basically where it was built. Um, 
Other than Damn. that, there's no real difference between them. Um, basically, a B-25D was built in uh, Kansas. B-25Cs were built in California. That's about it, really. Um, if you want to build one, Airfix and Academy, again. Um, I think I can hear Dennis crying in the background. <laughs> it's not right, man. This is fair. <laughs> Arma Hobby, make a 172 scale B-25D. That would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, if we go to the next one, as I said before, there was a modification, the F-10. So this is a reconnaissance B-25. You'll notice the uh, cheeks on the, no on the uh, nose. Those are for installing cameras. Oh, yeah. So when the United States entered World War II, the significance of aerial photography was well understood. A considerable portion of the world remained scientifically unmapped, and many of the existing maps were either inadequate, inadequate or inaccurate. In 1942, the Trimetragon camera system was introduced, primarily employing three synchronized K-17 6-inch cameras. This, tri this Trimetragon system revolutionized the process of aerial photo mapping, enabling the rapid and efficient mapping of expansive areas. The stability of the B-25 made an ideal choice not only as a bomber, but also for aerial photography. A single B-25D-F10 flying at 200 miles an hour could map, map 20,000 square miles in just four hours. All B-25D-F10 aircraft were taken directly from the Fairfax assembly line to the modification center for conversion. This conversion process involves stripping the plane of all armament and armor, reducing its weight by approximately 1,000 pounds. The distinctive bug-eye nose was installed to accommodate the Trimetrogon camera system, while the aircraft usually retained its standard reconnaissance camera situated aft of the bomb bay. Over the course of 1942 and 1943, a total of 50 B-25D bombers were transformed into the F-10. The B-25 was no stranger to cameras, as the military recognized the value of aerial reconnaissance. Many B-25 bombers were already equipped with cameras located either just after the bomb bay or later near the tail guns. These camera systems played a crucial role in assessing the effectiveness of bomb runs. Typically, these cameras were K-17, 20, 21, or 24 models, and they were set to capture continuous images at predetermined time intervals. Some systems could automatically activate the cameras when the bomb bay doors were opened, while others required manual initiation. B-25D-F10 was also employed for aerial reconnaissance, particularly for capturing images behind enemy lines. The F-10 bombers were utilized by various photo mapping and photo reconnaissance squadrons. Initially, they were deployed by the 311th Photo Wing, and later the 3rd, 7th, and 10th Photo Recon squadrons. Additionally, the 11th Tactical Re Reconnaissance Squadron and the 18th Combat Mapping Squadron, 19th and 34th Photo Recon, and the 91st Photo Mapping Squadron um, were also known to operate the F-10 modification. On November 7th, 1957, Colonel Jack A. Sims conceived the idea of modifying a B-25 to resemble Jimmy Doolittle's B-25B. The goal was to present the aircraft at the upcoming Doolittle Raider reunion scheduled for April 18th, 1958, and every available resource was harnessed to meet this deadline. Since utilizing an existing B-25B was not feasible, B-25D-F10 SN433374 was chosen. 
It was flown to the North American plant in Inglewood, California, where it was reconfigured to visually replicate a B-25B. The deadline was successfully met, and the aircraft is now on display at the National Museum of the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. And that photo is down at the uh, bottom left. So, of course, there are no uh, model kits for an F-10 conversion, but I feel like that's probably something you could scratch built fairly easily or 3D print. There must be a conversion I feel like this, somewhere. This entire subject is just like uh, get the base kit and then you can scratch build everything else. Pretty much, yeah. But I don't know. I wouldn't. I'm, I wouldn't mind a uh, recon one. And don't worry, this is not like last last episode where I go on for another. There's only like a couple more left. So you know, don't worry if you're getting bored. Oh. Although. The next You're few fun. you shouldn't be bored about because um, oh, ain't nothing boring about this. No, the, the, these are the Mitchells that employed a seventy-five millimeter cannon. There's nothing boring about a uh, about that. So we are talking about the B twenty-five G, also known as the, the Big Decker. So the B twenty-five G was conceived in response to a request from the United States Army that centered on the integration of the seventy-five millimeter cannon designated as the M four, hmm. very very original, which had been undergoing development and testing since nineteen thirty-six. By nineteen thirty-eight, successful installation and testing of the M four cannon had occurred in a Douglas B eighteen, and a demonstration took place at Eaglin Field in nineteen forty. To further enhance the cannon's capabilities, commercial firms were invited to participate in its development, leading to an improved design featuring a lighter cannon with increased firepower. The addition of a cannon to the B-25 posed numerous challenges and uncertainties when engineer George Wing was tasked with addressing. The ideal location for the cannon was found in the Bombardier's crawl tunnel, offering ample space for recoil and storage of ammunition in the navigator's compartment. The forward section of a B-25 was modified to test this new design, and to accommodate the cannon, the nose of the B-25 was shortened by 26 inches, consider considered the maximum aerodynamically acceptable reduction. The cannon's barrel end still aligned closely with the nose contour. Extensive fire tests were conducted with progressively higher propellant charges. The structure was reinforced until it could withstand prolonged firing of overcharged rounds. The XB-25G, a modification of B-25C, underwent tests flights in October 22, 1942, to evaluate the aircraft's flight characteristics. The first, first test shots were fired from the aircraft on October 23, 1942. North American conducted full testing of the XB-25G before delivering it to Eaglin Field for further testing by the Air Corps. Following successful testing, the Air Corps ordered 400 B-25Gs to be produced without lower turrets. Additionally, an extra 65 B-25C bombers were modified and redesignated as Gs, with most of these conversions carried out in Kansas. The production of the B-25G marked the initial phase of the decline of the B-25 production in Inglewood, California, with a sub subsequent focus on ramping up production in Kansas. Except for experimental aircraft, the B-25G and the B-25A are the only models for which no surviving airframes are known to have endured the war. Regrettably, the B-25G did not gain much popularity, partly due to the cannon's tendency to disrupt the navigational compass by as much as 15 degrees when fired. Moreover, the lower turret was consistently unpopular and often removed in the field. The Hawaiian Air, air Depot replaced the cannon with an eight-gun nose, 
of an unspecified number of uh, B-25Gs. Any remaining aircraft were eventually sold for scrap at the war's conclusion. So They said, fuck this aircraft, get it the hell out of here. Well, I mean, you, you fire it and suddenly you, you, your compass is out by 15 degrees. That is a lot. Like, that is, that, you, you're not coming home on that. Also, how how close do you have to be? I mean, the problem is the 75, right? Like, you're not getting off many shots with this thing in a single strafing run. And it's only one shell. you got to hit. So how close do you have to be to a target to actually hit it? Ugh. I, I um, take 850s in the nose over the 75, to be honest. Yeah. Right, and how did they yeah. reload the uh, 75? Like, where did they like, think, store the ammo? I think it was an, uh, an automatic system. It, it was, I think, yeah, it was a... Uh, Something, yeah, yeah, but um, the ammo was stored like in underneath the cockpit, I think, uh, in the navigator position. Oh, yeah, that's that's nice. Um, I will say though, the uh, nose arts for uh, solid nose Mitchells are really cool. Um, if you want to build one of these, you have two options one is again Academy in 48th, uh, or Dennis, you could build a tallery. Hmm. I would take the tallery. <laughs> I, I would take no, the tallery. Uh, 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 I don't know. I like the decals for the uh, a tallery one more. I like the I like the nose. Yeah, I don't know. However, we go on to the B twenty five H, which also had a seventy five millimeter in it. So, although the cannon-equipped B-25 concept didn't, didn't live up to its combat expectations, the, the idea still held promise. An additional 1,000 improved bombers were ordered, resulting in the creation of the B-25H, an aircraft with a mixture of improvements and controversies. The M4 cannon was replaced by a lighter T-13E1 75mm cannon. To accommodate the changes, the aft top turret was shifted forward, and the fuselage was slightly lowered to create space for twin 50 cal tail guns. These alterations made the B-25 easily distinguishable. The B-25H also featured four forward 50 cal guns instead of the previous two, although these were occasionally removed in the field. The first 300 B-25Hs had two 50 cal side blister guns in the right side only, while the remaining 700 aircraft included blister guns on both sides. Although the appearance sl varied slightly, there was an a field modification available to add side blister guns to nearly any B-25 model lacking them. The B-25 was very modular. The fuselage modifications also allowed for the installation of two 50 cal waste guns, making the B-25H one of the most formidable B-25s in the air at the time. The first B-25H was once, was once again a modified B-25C, as the new cannon wasn't ready wasn't yet ready for testing, this B-25C was equipped with a B-25G two-gun nose featuring the M4 cannon. A redesigned tail section was added along with the relocation of the top turret. This modified aircraft, known as Mortimer II, was also fitted with a modified right R2... Uh, modified right R2600-20 engine. Interesting, the modified, interestingly, the modified engine did not make it into the production blocks. The final B-25G was delivered on in August along with the first B-25H. The last B-25H produced at the Inglewood, Calif Inglewood California plant 
which also marks the end of B25 production there. Bones, which was uh, SN43-5104, was completed in July 1944. As the, as the aircraft approached completion, North American employees covered it with dollar bills, which were collected and donated to the Army Navy Relief Fund. North American President Dutch Kindleberger arranged for brushes and paint, and the employees used them to sign the historic bomber. Bones was assigned to the 10th Air Force, 12th Bomb Group, and arrived in India on November 30th. Many photogra photographs of Bones in service still show the signatures of the employees. Today, only four B-25H bombers are known to have survived. Presently, only one of these, Barbie 3, or SN43-4106, is airworthy. Among those remaining three, Dog Days still retains the B-25H nose. Uh, SN43-4432 is undergoing restoration, but it has a B-25J nose, while the other is a static display with a B-25J 8-gun nose. Uh, if you want to build one of these uh, really cool B-25s, um, Airfix has one, and uh, HK Models has one in 30-second scale. Over wow. 500,000 rivets? Sam. Wingspan of a, B, of a B-25H Mitchell in 30-second scale. Wingspan 643. That ah. is two rulers long. Wow. And it's a shade under half a meter long. Jesus. That's ridiculous. See, what, what gets me is just 500,000 rivets. Wow. I wouldn't even have to rivet that thing. I could just <laughs> build it straight out of the box. Jesus. But you know you won't. Well, no, of course. You have to add another 500,000. <laughs> you rivet it on rivets. Until the is 100% rivet. It, it, it's not riveted enough. Nah. Nah. Um, so yeah, there's a few photos uh, showing with the 75 in it, including the uh, T13E1 in the top middle there, showing just how the gun sits. But again, some really cool nose arts for these ones. Uh, and you finally see the turret coming from the, the rear up to the front. And uh, this carried on for the last make and model of the B-25, which, uh, Dennis, if you could do the honors. The B-25J. And this one, trying to find photos, it had two types of noses. You had a glazed one and a solid one with eight, eight, 850 cals in it, which is um, for strafing runs, which is uh, one hell of a uh, ornament right there. So, as the B-25J contract was finalized, production of B-25 aircraft at the Fairfax plant was shifted to the High Bay facility. With more available space in the original plant areas, production increased, and efforts were made to reduce reliance on external suppliers through increased subassembly work at the plant. Remarkably, during this tra transition, the plant did not shut down. Instead, assembly and manufacture processes were accelerated. The first B-25J bombers rolled off the assembly line in December 1943. The B-25J, the most heavily armed B-25 model to date, essentially combined the best features of the B-25H and the B-25D. Described by the U United States Army as the prefer as preferred due to increased firepower, improve, uh, improved bomb run stability, and superior performance in armament, speed, altitude, stability, visibility, night flying, and short field characteristics. The B-25J had two basic versions based on the nose configuration. 
an 8-gun strafer version and a more recognizable greenhouse version. The 8-gun strafer was equipped with twin 50 cal blister packs on each side and a top turret, providing a total of 14 50 cal guns pointing pointing forward. Jeez. Four, 14 50 cals. That is <laughs> that is a lot of ammo. Like that is we're going to kill them one way or the other. If you uh, yeah, if you're caught in that stream, you're you're not walking away from that. <laughs> so the B25J is arguably the most iconic among all B B25 models, largely thanks to the exceptional efficiency of the Fairfax bomber plant. During peak production, the plant was churning out 10 B25J bombers per day. Even after the Inglewood, California plant ceased production, the Fairfax plant continued to meet the demand for B-25s. In fact, production surpassed demand towards the end of the war, earning the plant the Navy, the Army Navy E for Excellence Award on October 6, 1944. Production at the North American Kansas plant continued until August 15, 1945, when they received official notice to halt production from Captain William H. Howell, the contracting officer. At the time, there were still 72 incomplete but flyable B-25s on the production line. On August 15, 1945, an unidentified high-ranking colonel visited the final assembly line and drew a line in the sand. Any aircraft with engines already mounted would be completed, whilst everything else behind that line would be scrapped. At that moment, there were 38 B-25Js in final assembly from the engine mounting station forward. Additionally, there were 12 in the armament hangar and 22 completed aircraft waiting to be fitted with their guns outside the armament hangar. These 72 aircraft were the last ones. Most of the employees were laid off on August 20th, 1945, leaving a small group of employees to begin the scrapping process and complete the final 38 aircraft. For the other 34, being incomplete simply meant they hadn't received their guns yet, and since the war had ended, they were flown to storage without their guns. The remaining, the remaining B-25s were finished over the next 60 days by their remaining personnel. The last B-25J, SN45-8899, was photographed the day it was completed on October 15, 1945, at the Fairfax plant. The remaining remaining B-25J bombers were flown to storage on October 30th, uh, 31, on, in 1945, and Jack Fitchner, a security guard, turned off the lights to the Fairfax B-25 bomber plant for the last time. On November 5, 1945, General Motors assumed control of the plant and, initi and initiated the transformation from aircraft manufacturing to automobile production. It was just me. Does that seem a bit sad? That last bit. It's just like a little bit. Yeah, it's just the, the sort of like a movie of like the security guy just like flipping the lights and like walking away for the last time. It's a bit anticlimactic, especially whenever then they come in to build fucking cars. It's like, yeah, I know. No. It's like, no, just keep building B twenty five. Just, just do it. Um, if you want to build a J, there are a lot, but I'm just gonna. Uh, there's there's a lot of the companies that make them, but I think uh, you got, of course, um, HK Models. They do both the Glazenose and the uh, Strafer. And Eduard do the B25J in Strafer in 70 seconds. So that's probably the the best bet you're going to get for a uh, decent kit of a B25. Am I right, Dennis? Yeah, I'd say well, so. I mean, Ravel does the 48-scale glaze nose. Oh, God, here we go well, with fucking Ravel. He sees an Eddard kit in 172. He's like, no, you know what would be better? A Ravel kit in 148. Yes, exactly. No, the Ravel 148-scale bomber guy. kits are not bad. 
if you can look past the raised panel lines. They're so good. Oh, yeah. If you look past Guys, running is not bad. Cycling (laughs) is not that great. Running is not bad. (laughs) Yeah, never trust the guy who does cross country running to have a kids. Callum, you know, with the amount of raised panel lines you build, you probably like running too. No. <laughs> okay, well, at least... Why do you think I bought a rescribing tool? That's funny you say that because I literally just plugged in my Dremel tool to scribe some facial features on this figure. That's funny. Just using well, yeah, a just Dremel get, to scribe j- Just get the Revell kit. Just get the Revell kit and rescribe the panel lines. Boom. <sighs> That's right. Are you trying to sell off a Revell kit that you got? <laughs> I wish. I would so build that if I had it. Are you uh, sure you have a girlfriend and it's not a guy? If it's a guy, it's okay. Because the yeah, shit you're sounding it sounds like it's mad gay. <laughs> I'll I'd check be really and get back to you guys next week. Was a girl. Oh god. He <laughs> hasn't hit third base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not run there first. <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> That was uh, pretty good, then. It's not going to lie. That was pretty <laughs> uh, So, is this the last slide for the B25? Dennis, could you go? No, it's not. <laughs> not. Three Super strafer. Right. On to the next slide. Trick to you all. Right, so we're looking at prototypes and experimentals. There are only three. The NA40, the XB25E, and F, and the NA98X. So, Dennis, if we can go on to the next one. We have this knockoff B25. <laughs> what the fuck? So before talking about the NA40, uh, we need to clarify that the NA40 was neither a B25 nor a prototype of a B25. Just need to point that out. It's a totally different thing on its own, but it looks similar and it was part of the process. Um, the NA40 cons- uh, constituted a distinct and separate aircraft. B-25 bomber didn't have a prototype. It was developed during its construction. You might be wondering why the history of the NA-40 was is included uh, with the B-25. And here, the reason lies within the historical context. The NA-40 was North American Aviation's entry in the 1938 competition for a twin-engine attack bomber. Although North American did not win the contract, the testing of the N- NA-40 dom- demonstrated its comp- impressive capabilities in the early stages the aircraft encountered numerous issues however these problems were overcome through subsequent design modifications demonstrating the exceptional engineering capabilities of the team lead by howard evans the na40 was designed for a crew of five including pilot co-pilot bombardier slash navigator radio operator slash gunner and gunner pilot and co-pilots occupied tandem seats while a greenhouse nose was provided for the bombardier navigator and the radio operator and gunner were seated towards the rear. This arrangement allowed for a maximum fuselage width of 45 inches. The wings were shoulder-mounted with constant dihedral and fully underslung nacelles. The NA-40 was powered by two Pratt & Whitney engines equipped with three-blade Curtis electric propellers and featuring three 30-caliber flexible guns with 500 rounds each. Bays for two fixed 30-cal guns were designed into each wing, although they were not initially installed. During the initial test flights, the NA-40 exhibited instability, leading to a total of 14 test flights, amounting to just 5 hours and 20, 20 minutes of flight time. 
The initial flight, the initial test flights revealed the aircraft required more powerful engines and improved aerodynamics. Between February 28th and March 1st of 1939, the NA-40 under, underwent a substantial design overhaul. The two wing-mounted 30-caliber machine guns were installed and the Pratt and and the Pratt & Whitney engines were replaced with Wright engines, although the Curtis Electric propellers were retained temporarily due to the unavailability of the desired Hamilton standard hydronatic propellers. The Hamilton propellers could fully feather faster than the Curtis Electric propellers, but were not yet accessible. The modified airframe was de was designated as the N40 NA40B and given the civil res registration X12 X1422-1. These improvements were highly successful and testing continued. On April 11, 1939, during a single-engine test flight, the aircraft lost altitude and crashed. Fortunately, all on board escaped <laughs> uninjured, and shortly after the exit, the plane burst into flames and was completely destroyed. So <laughs> <laughs> that's just proving it's safe enough that you can get out before it bursts into flames. Fucking hell. Ugh. It's a kooky looking aircraft, isn't it? It's like almost B-25, but not quite B-25. It's like that, uh, what is it, the X-35? Mm. What do you say, Dennis? You need to speak up. I'm sorry. It, it's giving me Lancaster vibes for that canopy. It's, it's kind of... Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a 30s des American design um, with the nose in that canopy. Like They, they love those sort of the birdcage greenhouse type uh, canopies back then. If we go to the uh, next slide, we have the XB25E and the FA. So these were testing de-icing uh, systems. So during the course of the war, the B-25 bomber was engaged in operations around the world. However, the limitations of the existing, existing inflatable leading-edge de-icer boots had become increasingly evident. Consequently, there were there was a recognized need to develop a system to address this issue. In response to this challenge, the ICE research base was established as a facility dedicated to studying the effects of ice or frost on aircraft and devising effective solutions. Among the aircraft involved in this testing program was North American Aviation's XB-25E, which served as the test program. This program also included a B-17F, two B-24s, an XC-53A, and a26 and a C82 and a B26. The XB25E was not manufactured from scratch but rather modified from an existing B25C. The modification process began in early 1943 and continued throughout February 1944. Significant alterations were made within the wing to accommodate the movement of air heated by exhaust gases. The engine cowlings were also adapted to provide the necessary air for the system for the system. Ugh, excuse me. The installation of a heat exchanger on the exhaust system along the control valves for managing airflow were key components of the modifications. Following minimal testing by North American, the aircraft was delivered to the Lewis Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio in July 1944. Over the subsequent subs Ugh, fuck me. Over the subsequent years, the XB25E, which had been named renamed Flame and Mammy, was extensively involved in various testing programs. In February and March of 45, the aircraft was used to assess the impact of icing on propellers. The airframe 
de-icing system proved so effective that it made it possible to isolate the areas of icing specifically on the propellers. Throughout 1945 and 46, the B-25E played a crucial role in testing to develop improved anti-icing systems for virtually all parts of aircraft. The XB-25E remained a part of testing efforts until February 1953, at which point it was returned to the United States Air Force at Wright Field. So something good to come out of World War II. Yeah. Well, there was a few things. (laughs) The outcomes of... The outcomes of the testing demonstrated the effectiveness of the design, although it was considered cost-prohibitive for widespread implementation. Nevertheless, the knowledge and data gathered during the test testing proved invaluable in enhancing the safety of future aircraft operating in icy conditions. The X, XB-25F-A was a modified B-20C uh, used insulated electrical coils mounted inside the wing and epinage leading edges to in- test the effectiveness of a de-icing system. The hot air de-icing system was tested on the XB-25E was determined to be more practical than the uh, F. So, it's just a test bed for de-icing. So, uh, you know, not much to it. And if we go on to the last one, this is the last one, I promise. Ugh, need to take a sip first. We come finally to the NA. 98X, or Super Strafer. So the development of the NA-98X from the B-25 was a logical progression. Originally, North American had sought to equip the B-25 with Pratt & Whitney R-2800 engines, but when those weren't available, the reliable Wright engines were used instead. By 1944, many B-25s were being field modified with additional 50 cal guns, and side blister packs were retrofitted to aircraft that didn't have them from the factory. The 75mm cannon was often replaced with 50 cal guns to enhance the B-25 performance, uh, serving as a cost-effective alternative to the expensive Douglas A-26B. The NA-98X was the culmination of these efforts. The NA-98X aimed to maximize the B-25 performance. B-25Hs were served on the base for these modifications. The wingtips were squared off, increasing the Arillon surface area. A low drag turret canopy was introduced. The more powerful 2,000 horsepower, 2,000 horsepower Pratt and Whitney engines offered a significant boost in power, although they added weight. To address the issues of excessive bending movements in the wings during extreme conditions, larger rivets were used in the leading edge skins. This structural modification was implemented due to the increased power in aileron area. Flight testing involved restrictions on maximum speed and acceleration to minimize stress on the wings. However, on March 31, 1944, the NA-98X had its inaugural test flight piloted by North American test pilot Joe Barton. He he reported higher speed, improved acceleration, reduced vibration, and a significantly enhanced roll rate. The NA-98X's performance outshone previous B-25 models. Over the next 25 days, several test pilots, including Chief Test Pilot Ed Virgin, Army Pilots Major Otto McCliver, Captains Fountain and McFadden, and Squadron Leader Hartford of the RAF evaluated the NA-98X. The last test pilot to fly it was Major Perry Ritchie of the Air Corps at Wrightfield. Major Ritchie and First Lieutenant Winton Way were tasked with testing the aircraft for the Army Air Force. Major Ritchie expressed great satisfaction with the new aircraft. At the end of each day's testing, he he executed a high-speed, low-level pass over the flight ramp, followed by a steep spiral pull-up. 
North American structural engineers had imposed strict airspeed and acceleration res- restrictions, which Major Ritchie chose to disregard. On the third day of Good testing, for him. yeah, break the rules. I mean, you got Americans. You're testing. You got to do what you got to do. You know. Yes. 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 Um, however, there is a however. On the third day of testing, as Major Ritchie commenced another high-speed, low-altitude pass, he once more pulled up steeply. This time, however, at an altitude of about 200 feet, the outer wing panels detached and flew back into the tail section, sharing it from the plane. The aircraft aircraft crashed, resulting in an instantaneous death of both Major Ritchie and First Lieutenant Winton Way. It'll buff. Well, maybe they had a point. I, th- I think the engineers had a point. <laughs> uh, the N A ninety eight X was completely destroyed, and the investigation into the crash revealed a deep buckle on the top surface of the right wing panel. Although this failure wasn't a- attributed to the cr- crash's cause, it was Major Ritchie's reaction to it that contributed to the to the accident. It's worth noting that the increased power and improved handling of the N A ninety eight made it easier to fly beyond the structural limits of the wings. Such an improvement would likely necessitate wing structure modifications to ensure both the aircraft and crew safety. However, whether these modifications would have been nullified would have nullified the benefits of the improved design or raised the cost to a similar level of the Douglas A26B is a matter of speculation. Following the crash, the NA98X program was terminated. And that is it. That is the B25 Mitchell history and all that bollocks. Well, you- fucking hell. Thank you, Cal. Yes, thank you very good. much. Wow. All right, we're just going to have a brief intermission, then we'll get into hobby news and whips and a couple of announcements on things. So we'll be right back. Dennis, he just puts the Ezra in Israeli. Oh, <laughs> shit! <laughs> uh, okay, all right. Shall we, oh shall we continue on this shit show? Uh, um, love you guys. Hobby news. Yes. Hobby news. Panda. Oh god. <laughs> and <laughs> bro, oh, ain't no way. Hey, the only thing is, I will say with this, because it's a full interior, I would totally build like an HIDF Merkava, but like have the back ramp open and have a little LED lights you can see inside. Oh shit! That yeah. would be that, dope. That would be cool. no. Like, hear me out. Hear me out. I'm no. gonna build this with everything no. open and like different sub assemblies. It's gonna look fire. That would be pretty cool. Well, actually, yeah, you do. Um, you've seen those ones where it's uh, you know, they put like um, the the clear sprue and it holds yeah. the open yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it does come with you know they say the anti slip um material, although as we found out from uh Martin, it's not. Uh, specifically anti-slip material, it's anti-glare material. So, oh, really? Yeah. Um, huh. Well, you know, Merkavas have a lot of flat panels in a desert. Uh, flat panels um, reflect light around the place. Uh, you put <clears throat> this rough texture over it, it stops uh, stops sort of reflection glares and all of that and just helps with concealment in a desert. I will say this. I would totally or you could just not fight in the desert this covered in camel nuts and jungle leaves that would be cool that would yeah. be kind of neat the, my uh, biggest criticism of the Rakava is the paint horrible color 
Yeah, bro, I love the color. It's of course like, you do. You fucking yeah, you like Mr. Kirk Tan over here likes this. <laughs> Actually, no, no, no. It's called Sinai Gray. It's, I know it's not Kirk Tan. Like, it's neither Olive Crab nor Kirk Tan. They can't pick a. Is song. that shit really called something gray? Yeah, Sinai Gray. Wait, oh my, Sinai Gray. <laughs> fucking god! Again, extremely subtle. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. It's like your HIDF thing, Ezra. Yeah, so this is uh, from Das Werk. Uh, it is das the 8.8-centimeter Flak Alf 9T Vomag, which is a dedicated anti-aircraft um, vehicle. And I will say it is a large kit. It comes with a photo etch, and it looks really cool. i got to say, I actually kind of like the look of this vehicle. Even if it is German, but it just something about it just looks like this the, would make a spectacular HIDF build. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the test the test build up in the right hand corner. We've got the three schemes. Uh, I do like the uh, kill count bands on the um, the barrel. But yeah, uh, I oh. would I would finally call this as some someone doing something interesting or something different, not a fucking another stug or something like that this would be a great hidf anti-ship vehicle oh yeah yeah do think about it like it's anti-ship but it's mounted on like a barge no 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 no. like this thing is mobile on the islands and it just if there's ships offshore this bitch can just shoot and move just fucking bam 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 like uh and a barge that would be dope too but fuck Ah, but also just the look of it. It like even though it's a dedicated like designed vehicle, it looks so jury rigged. HIDF. Yeah. I got, I really want this now. I really want one of these. But yeah, so it comes with full interior, uh, things opposable. Cool looking uh cool looking model. What's next? Skip. Ooh. So up next from oh, mini art, yeah, mini art in 35th scale, we have a T3485. This one is a model 1945 from Plant 112. Main distinguishing feature of this type is the turret was made slightly differently. They uh, modified the the mod 1945 was the last production, basically before the end of the war. And uh, on the right there, you can see the different. Um, modifications they made to the turret interestingly enough um when t30 the production of t3485 ceased uh in russia but continued on in other uh warsaw pact uh countries you know poland and all of them they actually they didn't use this latest modification they used the uh modification from before this one so this was the own uh, plant 112 was the only plant that made this modification for the t3485 but it's a full interior kit, uh, standard mini artifact, probably that really shitty soft plastic. Yeah. Where, where mattress? Fucking, where's where's mattress springs? Uh, probably ran out. <laughs> Next, please. Not enough orphans to take him from. Ooh. Oh. This is one that I really want, actually. Uh, even though it is uh, HK models. So they've brought out, in 48 scale, they've brought out the uh, Mark III uh, Lancaster. Then after that, they brought out the Dambusters 
Lancaster. Now they're bringing out the special, the Grand Slam Lancaster, which is also which is kind of a sort of natural progression. I mean, when you think about it, to make a Grand Slam, you just blank off the nose turret and remove the top turret and remove the uh, Bombay. You got yourself a, spe- a um, Mark One special Grand Slam. So this is definitely something if I could get. I really, really want to make a uh, Grand Slam special. These things are really cool. They have a really cool camo scheme because they weren't used at nighttime, so they have a, you know, one of some of the few Lancasters that had a daytime uh, camo st- scheme. So even just that fact makes it really cool. But uh, we have a grand total of 396 parts, a wingspan of about 600 mil, length of uh, 440 millimeters. So it's quite quite a large model, but um, one that is on my radar. What about you guys? hundred percent. This is arguably the coolest version of the Lancaster. I yeah. I don't build aircraft, yeah. so probably not. I'd say. What are you yelling about? You're building an AC-130. <laughs> I'd say the only thing I can see just from box art that might be slightly wrong with it is the tail gun. Purely by the fact that I think the Mark One Special they reduced it from four 303 machine guns down to two. Uh, just to try and save as much weight as possible. Because, of course, uh, the Grand Slam bomb was so heavy that um, they were used by 617 Squadron. I've read the book about them. And they used the entire length of the runway to get airborne. And even when they did, the bend in the wings, you look at photos, there were significant bend in the wings. And they didn't know what would happen when they first dropped it. And, of course, when they dropped the, was it the 12,000-pound bomb, well, the weight differential, the aircraft ended up would shoot up about a hundred foot higher the minute they released the bomb, just because of the weight differential. It was, uh, it was, uh, I think one bombardier mentioned that he was lying down aiming the bomb. The minute they released, he was pinned to the ground, and the entire aircraft just rose sharply a hundred foot more higher in the air from it. Um, yeah. It's an interesting aircraft, uh, interesting squadron to read about, actually, 617 Squadron, because they were the dam busters and then went on and did, uh, as well as the Grand Slam, they'll drop uh, the smaller Tall Boys, uh, which ultimately helped sink, uh, was it Turpits? Turpits, yeah. 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 So, actually, you could probably, yeah. So, but yeah, interesting bit of trivia about the uh, Grand Slam special. So yeah, one to look out for. And I know uh, up next uh, in the figures from Alpine Figures, uh, this particular bit of news made uh, Christian particularly um, excited. We have two two uh, American figures, one of them being a medic. That was uh, what he got really excited over. But we have a whole bunch of uh, heads for them. And yeah, they... Kind of look pretty good, actually. So, if you're into figures, Alpine figures, and thirty uh, fifth, I can't wait for the Alley release. Let's go. <laughs> Give it a week. The uh, Alley Express release actually comes a day before the actual Alpine release. Probably. That wouldn't surprise me, actually. They're just ahead of the curve. Um, what's next? Is that all? Whoops. Yep. That that is all for uh, hobby news. It wasn't a lot. <laughs> wasn't a lot, but there were some interesting ones. Um. I'm going to stop talking now, Dan. Uh, Garrison, Garrison you're take it away. All right, so I've got four slides today because uh, I deserve it. I've been a good boy. 
So first one, just kind of giving an overall showcasing what I've been working on. Uh, I've completed my TACOM 114 and the Tamiya Tojeep for the HIDF uh, bridge defense diorama. I've finished all the figures and all the extra equipment and whatnot you see there in front of you. Um, I started, it's actually, it's kind of funny. I bought these figures to build this diorama over a year ago, like a year and a month ago. And I just now finished them. Um, but yeah, pretty fun stuff. Uh, had a lot of a lot of fun working on the vehicles, the figures. I made some custom trash bags with uh, latex gloves, some milli, old milli putt, and uh, PVA glue. So uh, that was fun. But uh, yeah, I'll make it short for this slide. If you'll go to the next one, please. <clears throat> oh, so first, water. first time using uh, deep pour water. This is from Woodland Scenics. I got the clear and then added three drops of the blue green and one drop of the light gray green to kind of make it kind of look sandyish. Uh, so right now I'm I'm looking at it. It's still in the clear container. I've got an alarm set for tomorrow afternoon for when it'll be 24 hours. I can take the tape off, clean up the residue, polish it, add Mod Podge gloss, all that fun shit. But uh, yeah, diorama is almost finished. Very excited. Looking forward to the show in November. That's awesome. Yeah, that looks like, really good. Yeah. Appreciate it. Uh, here's kind of a sneak peek at the diorama before I added the water. I <clears throat> uh, did some test fitting with the vehicles. Um, had a lot of fun doing the graffiti in the back there. I recently added, before I put the diorama into the box to let the resin cure, I added the spray can. Uh, the It's a black and red spray can I painted up for the uh, spray paint there in the back. So... Yeah, looking forward to. I think once once I get the the resin water done, I can stain the sides, add all of the figures and accessories and vehicles to the build, and then add the plaque. And I think that's it. I'm pretty sure that'll finish this build out. So, and then uh, just some close-up shots of the 114 and the tow jeep. Uh, I have a few videos on YouTube about the figures and the both vehicles, but uh, fun stuff. Dennis, thanks for all the inspiration. Oh, of um, course, man. <laughs> and then, obviously, the fucking game itself, Armor 3. So, But yeah, that's, uh, that's my whips. That is amazing, man. Really well done. Yeah, it looks so good. Hard emojis. <laughs> oh, shit, this is me. Um, so this is my 144th scale Revell H64 that I've built up over like the last month. I just finished it. Um, I'm really happy with how it turned out it ended up being shown on the, uh, ammo by Meg Instagram. So, oh shit. This guy Fuck yeah, it is. For three like months and he comes back with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So. So much scratch building was involved. Uh, tons of reference picks. I, I I love how all the cables ended up turning out. They're all just yeah, stretched through, good. except for the fuel line, which is lead wire. It's fucking nice, dude. Like it, especially for the scale. Like if this was like forty-eight scale, it would be amazing. 
But this yeah. is, you say it was one to what? 144th. That's fucking insane. <laughs> it's very well done. Thank you. And I love like the crack in the uh, concrete, like next to where the cables are, where it's kind of uh, bunched up. Is that cork? Do you use cork? Uh, no, that's, uh, that was drawn with a pencil. Oh, no shit. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Yep. So it was just one flat piece, and then um, I kind of stippled primer on there, some washes, oils, and then all the actual uh, separations were just drawn on with a pencil. Very nice. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, weathered to... You can go on the next slide. Mm. There's... And then I built the aviation uh, fire extinguisher from scratch. Fuck. Yeah, so um, the wheels were little photo etched circles, and the rest of it is all stretched sprue and a little lead wire. That is... Uh, how long did that take you, that little fire extinguisher? Um, maybe two hours. That's kind of awesome, dude. Fast. Wow. Yeah, and then the Hellfires... Have the little clear tips. Uh, the yellow bands were just spare decals. Then the remove before flight covers on the intakes. Amazing work, Ezra. Amazing. Yeah, work. thank you. As always, dude. Fucking spectacular work, man. Thank you. Oh, and you can even see the seatbelts. Which is even more insane at that scale. Yeah. And then I, I took it upon myself. To pretty much scratch build the interior for a AC-130. It's the Italeri kit. Um, just all made up of plastic hard, some styrene rods, lead wire. This took a few days. And uh, I just did really simple painting in there. I just sprayed black, some gray over it, and then used acrylic washes and called it a day. Very nice. Do you prefer working with acrylic washes or oil washes? Oil all day, but um, I don't know. I wanted to experiment a little. Yeah. Yeah, I think it turned out pretty well. And I ended up adding some more cables to the inside, but you'll see them in the finished photos. Wow. Amazing work, guys. Really, really some neat, neat stuff. Okay. Who wants to uh, discuss the new thing we're doing? That uh, would be a Callum thing. Uh, yeah, I will. So, as a podcast, of course, we uh, do group builds and stuff like that, but sometimes some people just uh, want to prove they're better than others. Uh, so, we are implementing a challenge build-off type thing. Uh, you go mano a mano with uh, someone else in the uh, server. You call them out. You guys decide on what you're going to build, whether it's a 70-second aircraft or whatever. You guys determine it when you start, finish. And then throughout the whole time, we can see how you're working on it. Uh, and then we decide who wins and who loses and shit talk each other to, until the cows come home. It's, it's going to be fun to watch. So at the moment, um, we've got three competitions going on at the moment we have uh dennis and don with uh canadian spitfires how's that one going 
Well, it's going pretty well. Uh, Don and I have both started. So the basically the challenge is you, we need to build a 172 scale Spitfire that was either flown by the Canadian Air Force or by a Canadian pilot in the Foreign Service. He is building an Edward 172 scale Spitfire, one of the later marks, um, flown by the RAF by a Canadian pilot. And I have chosen to meet his venerable 172 scale uh, Spitfire Mark V tropical variant because it actually has markings for Canadians flying in Tunisia right out of the box. Um, he's gotten a lot more progress done than I have, but uh, that's the goal this weekend is to get some more done. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, of course, then we have uh, Hotshot and Christian. They are competing with Figures and Treadhead and Waz are doing Tiny Tanks. So um, we have a channel dedicated to it where you can call someone out. Um, we got a list of rules, then you add yourself to the list. Uh, we can discuss it on the podcast, uh, give updates, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's looking to be, you know, just something a bit different, you know, a bit bit fun. You don't want to do a full group build, but, you know, um, you could do a buddy build, but we're too competitive for that. You know, if you're both going to be building the same thing, we're going to decide who wins on that. So, and whoever wins basically just gets bragging rights, really. But yeah. yeah, that's uh, something else. If if you do this, don't don't be a bitch. Like <laughs> if you lose for whatever reason, it doesn't really matter. Like don't don't go crying about it. But um, yeah, so we'll we'll uh, we're still figuring out um, how to do judging and stuff like that. But you know, we've got a while to figure that out. But yeah, if you got um, any questions or if you want to try and do it, uh, just get in touch with one of us. Uh, we'll show you how basically yeah and garrison all right so uh the hidf group build is a continuous thing it's just part of the podcast now we've I mean, we basically started it fucking forever ago but the official group build started june 6 it was supposed to end october 6 but fuck it every quarter or so we'll start showcasing what people build of the hidf so come on to the Discord and indulge with us. All right. Uh, as of right now, our main group build focus is the North African campaign group build. It's running from November 1st, 23 to March 1st, 24. Join the Discord server, read all the rules, uh, check out what people are going to build. Uh, really cool prize. It's... Uh, believe it's any model or models of your choice up to 60 us dollars not including shipping so uh, only one winner so come on out enjoy have fun compete and uh yeah build on sounds good uh dennis all right the micro machines podcast is proudly sponsored by scale colors if you are looking for non-toxic airbrush paints and or, and or uh, 3D printed resin tracks for your latest tank project, definitely uh, drop by scalecolors.com. Give Jeff some amazing products a look and uh, get painting. Whoop, whoop. And as always, a massive thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we are really lucky. We've got some uh, new supporters this, uh, this whoop, whoop. week. So I'd like to thank Paul Gallagher, Lord Floki, Robert Judson and Robert Brisbane for uh, all of your support. If you want to access special exclusive content that we are not allowed to post on YouTube <laughs> um, and or just to interact with us uh, more directly, 
Uh, and if you want to just keep the lights on, because it does actually cost money to run this podcast, believe it or not, um, <laughs> go on over to our Patreon. The link is in the uh, description of our YouTube video. And consider shooting us a couple of your hard-earned dollars. Awesome. Thank you, guys. And All on right. that note, gentlemen, that was a podcast. It was a podcast. It, it was. was nice. It was very good. <laughs> Alrighty. Yeah, well. So, uh, just want to say, Ezra, yep. glad you're back. Yeah, thanks oh, for coming thank back, you. Ezra. Good to be back. Now we it's just about gotta... time. It's about time. Now we just got to get Jack yeah. back on, and that's the. Uh... For real, where is Jack? Peterborough. <laughs> mm. All right, Dennis. Well, if you have come to this point with us, thank you so much for watching and listening to the Micro Machines podcast. And we will return to you next week. Bye, everyone. See ya. See ya. See ya. Was that a jazzy, jazzy one?